You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And today, we have a very special guest, someone who has been a very kind and helpful resource for the podcast in a variety of ways, and been a very kind and helpful resource to each of us individually on some level or another. And that person is uh, Dr. Jeremy Sabella, Professor Jeremy Sabella. Now, before I formally introduce you all to Jeremy, I want to orient our audience to what we've been trying to do in these last few podcasts. A few weeks ago, we started looking into the historical person of Reinhold Niebuhr to try to open up his context and history, a little bit about his personal life, and look at what motivates him as a pastor and a scholar. We just wrapped up our series on Dr. Gary Dorian's take on Niebuhr, culminating in a wonderful interview we had with Dr. Dorian last week, and I hope that you're able to to go back and listen to that. And now we turn to Jeremy Sabella's book, An American Conscience. This book, we all started reading together and decided, yeah, we should probably give a lot more attention to this uh, than other works for a number of reasons, but we decided to break this down. So we, we decided, what we decided to do is we will be examining this book chapter by chapter, each episode of the podcast dedicated to an individual chapter. And Jeremy has been kind enough to kind of bookend our examination of his book by coming on with us once here at the very beginning before we start. And then a second time after we have concluded. So let me introduce Jeremy and then we'll get into it. Jeremy is a lecturer at Dartmouth. He has uh, studied at Notre Dame, Yale Div, and he earned his PhD at Boston College. He specializes in religion and politics, um, two topics you don't bring up in bars. Uh, And particularly, he studies uh, religion and politics in the post-World War II era, so right in Niebuhr's wheelhouse. Uh, so Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. And I, I appreciate you flagging religion and politics because the things you're not supposed to bring up in bars, because um, as somebody who bartended at one point, oh, nice. I still found a way to talk <laughs> religion and politics. So it's just <laughs> part of well, the as a I bartender, believe. you're kind of also a counselor, too, in a way. I don't know. You're kind of there to listen <laughs> to people's problems, right? Oh, absolutely. And as soon as people found out this was at the grad student bar at Yale. And as soon as people found out that I studied religion, um, it was just over from there, right? <laughs> like they, <laughs> I'd hear about, you know, their, their thoughts on religion, their struggles with religion, um, their personal issues. I gave a lot of relationship advice. It, you are, you're kind of in this therapeutic role <laughs> as bartender. Lovely. Can you stick around afterwards for some <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Jeremy, how this is going to work is we all have questions prepared and we'll just go in order. I'll start and then Zach and then, uh, Aaron, we can spend as long as we want on any individual question. So Jeremy, first question, why Niebuhr? What got you interested in this man? Uh, well, so I actually had not read any Reinhold Niebuhr. I got through 
undergrad, I got through my master's program at Yale Divinity School, which had a Niebuhr teach at it, his brother H. Richard. He went there. Um, Even there, I did not read any Niebuhr. First time I engaged Reinhold Niebuhr was in my uh, final semester of coursework as a PhD student. My goodness. Right. So it was super, super late in the game for me. Um, But, you know, I, I, on a whim, I took a class that was looking at um, American religious history and focusing particularly on theologians from the American landscapes, everybody from Jonathan Edwards through Walter Rauschenbusch through a figure like Niebuhr. Um, And we read Moral Man and Immoral Society and um, the book kind of blew my mind. And you know, the reason that it did so was that, you know, I, I come from um, an evangelical background. My parents were missionaries. I, I grew up overseas in Central America. Um, and one of the hallmarks of evangelicalism is that it's very much focused on a personal relationship with, with Jesus, this idea of this unmediated contact with the divine uh, through one's engagement with the scripture, uh, you know, through signs and wonders, things like that. Um. And one of the things that I had noticed about my own background is that it was really focused on personal morality, personal relationship with God, and was really deficient at thinking about um, one's social obligations and the morality of one's social obligations, right, about structures and how one interfaces with structures. So in Moral Man and Immoral Society, Niebuhr just laser focuses on what it means to exercise power as a person who has certain ethical commitments or depending on one's background, certain faith commitments. And his conclusions of sober one in that book, right? Which is basically that um, there's no such thing as opting out of the power game. If you have any desire to change society in any way, shape or form, you are playing the power game and you will be using the tools of coercion. So the question doesn't become, do you coerce or not? The question becomes, what are ethical and unethical ways of exercising coercion? So it's this very fine grained analysis of power. And it's something that I saw lacking in my own, um, you know, my own faith background. And I saw in Niebuhr a, a language and a method for reintroducing that reflection on what it means to exercise power as a Christian um, and, and try to reintroduce it to um, the communities that I come out of. So it was a two-pronged thing because Niebuhr's very careful about making his work available to secular audiences. Um, and he excels at that. Um, what I ended up doing in my own work is working on exposing this theological underlay to Niebuhr's work. Right, it might be expressed in terms that secular audiences could understand and run with, and they did. But there's this whole rich theology underlying it, so that ended up being the focus of my doctoral work. So, second semester of you know final semester of my PhD program, where I'm doing coursework, I decided I'm going to write on Niebuhr, and they're writing a dissertation called "The Politics of Original Sin," mm. um, because I was fascinated by the way that you had these figures that were secular figures. Some of them were, you know, considered themselves to be agnostic or atheist who started using the language of sin to talk about politics. Mm -hmm. And I learned pretty quickly that Niebuhr was the reason why, you know, he had succeeded in not only in talking about power in this theologically nuanced way, 
but doing it in terms that secular audiences could also understand and glean from. Mm. Um, and so in my work and exposing the theological underlay, I also made an attempt to bring that back to religious audiences and to really push people to think about the consequences of sin on a broader social scale, right? On a structure, structural scale and to use Christian discourse on original sin to tease out how are we supposed to intervene in very broken structures and how do we own up to the broken structures we inherit and how do we work on nudging those towards something better? What would you just follow up? What would you say to there there's growing movement. I suppose it's been there for a long time from evangelical circles, someone like Harawas who would say essentially that it's wrong or ineffective or weak or corrupting to interpret one's Christianity into society like that, the way that Niebuhr does. What would you say to an audience who is hesitant to kind of use uh, a Niebuhrian method of interpreting kind of Christian language into a secular sphere? Well, you know, I, I do appreciate what figures like Harawas are trying to do in the sense of, you know, there's, there's this, you know, this thing called Christian witness that needs to be protected and that we can't compromise on. And there are all sorts of ways that we compromise that. So let's not do that. I, I, you know, I get the impulse, but where I think I do part ways with a lot of that crowd is I don't think there's a way of expressing any of the categories of theology without routing it through culture and language and human experience, right? It's all mediated by these things. Mm -hmm. And so precisely because of its mediated character, right? um, The language through which you and I understand faith and understand Christianity and understand Jesus, it's the same, you know, basic categories of thought and experience that people are using to articulate their secular commitments, Mm right? Right. And it's kind of like, I, I'm not sure how you can have a doctrine of original sin and not apply it to everything, you know, or have a doctrine like Imago Dei and not apply it to all, hum- all humanity and just kind of, you know, cloister it in the halls of Christianity and that's it. I, I would agree with that as well. And, you know, again, I, I appreciate, um, you know, Parawas's intervention. I appreciate the Bardian corrective to just conflating Christ with culture, right? Yeah. It's, it's problematic yeah. in all sorts of ways. So you have somebody like Karl Barth, you know, comparing revelation to this crater, right? Mm-hmm. That just explodes on the human scene and is completely other. And we have to just figure out how to bear witness to that. Um, but again, I think it's important to contextualize historically what somebody like Bart was doing, right? At the end of the day, um, you know, Bart formulates this wonderfully complex and elaborate theology using his own cultural categories. Um, no, and dope. in that process, I think, you know, that there needs to be more reflection on, okay, so what tools are you using to bear witness? You're going to find that you end up having a lot of overlap with a lot of other people who don't share your commitments. So you say mediation, right? Now, I think the biggest critique that like someone like Harawas provides to neighbor and like-minded liberal theologians is that they're trying to make the gospel relevant to current events. So, but you're saying it's mediated that Christianity, the gospel is mediated through culture. We can't make sense of these sorts of things 
without our language, without these sorts of things invested and involved in. So would you be able to speak to that for a second? What do you think is the difference between something being mediated versus something is making something relevant? And what do you see Niebuhr saying? Is he trying to make it relevant or is he just describing what's going on through the gospel? That That's an excellent question. And, um, you know, I'm not sure we can draw a clean distinction between yeah, yeah. things being mediated and things being relevant. Um, but I do think there's a difference between, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to bring so-and-so into my camp or to like look important in their eyes versus I'm going to do what I can to translate this experience into terms that this other person can access. Right. So I think of, you know, Paul talking about attempting to be all things to all people. I, I don't think we necessarily have to read that as Paul attempting to be relevant to everybody, but there is a sense there where he's saying, okay, like if I'm, you know, going to, you know, speak to, you know, a Greek audience, yes, I'm going to use their pantheon as a point of reference to talk about Christianity. Right. What? Well, yeah. And I think that's a big distinction that happens in, um, especially in evangelicals with like the, the, the professional apologist. It's like, I, I find Niebuhr to be perhaps the, the most powerful apologist I've encountered in my life for the case for Christianity. It's ironic, though, because he, I don't think, is like trying to do that. He's just trying to translate. He's trying to say, like, this is, what, this is what's actually happening. Like, like uh, Cliff always says, he's clarifying reality. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He's, he's, he's clarifying reality, not prescri giving a prescription. And I think that that's what ma makes him, uh, there's some sort of draw there. You know, it's like he has a force, a power in society. I think a lot of people try to get to, but they do it by this other way that you guys are talking about. Well, and it also comes down, you know, something that I think Niebuhr felt really deeply is um, that Christianity does illumine corners of reality in ways that other thought systems don't, right? That category such as sin and grace um, capture, to use Pascal's language, the glory and misery of humanity um, in ways that, that other systems just can't. And so for somebody like Niebuhr, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the relevance of it, he took that for granted, right? He approaches audience saying, this is relevant to you, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show you how this actually makes better sense of um, your experience in the world around you than whatever you're working with, mm -hmm. right? So there is something almost confrontational in in Niebuhr's approach in that way where he's almost daring people to say like can you do better and him saying i, I i'm pretty sure you can't these are really powerful yeah. categories so pay attention yeah. right um so there is kind of an edge there that you're not going to get um with people who are fixating on on being relevant or being culture current or whatever else uh, zach next question Oh, yeah. Well, I got a couple of personal questions because I, you know, uh, we're, we're trying to get people familiar with the development of this book. And uh, I guess starting, you know, back with your education, right, you kind of given us a little window into why Niebuhr, why you ended up down that road. Um, I, there's a question that always comes up to me when I'm talking with Cliff and with some of these other people that have kind of gotten uh, PhDs in Niebuhr studies. Um how do you think Niebuhr would feel about people getting a PhD in, in him? It's just one of those kind of funny questions that I think of, like, how, how do you think like he would reflect upon somebody studying his work to such a degree 
that's having a, been through that's that. a fascinating question I, and you know Niebuhr never got a PhD I mean he got honorary degrees yeah we forget this about him right he got a master's and was so good at commanding an audience that Union Seminary gave him a shot and he was so good at rallying students around him that they had to give him a professorship mm-hmm. right um so no, there is a definite kind of irony intention there. And, you know, I know for me, part of the irony intention is for my work, I spent all sorts of time in the Niebuhr papers going through his personal correspondence. Um, and there's a sense in which you get to know people awkwardly well, where if they were alive, it would be very strange, mm-hmm. right? Because these are personal letters, right? Sometimes it's, you know, him and his wife, Ursula, hashing things out while he's traveling abroad. Right. And you get this window into like what they're doing to make their marriage work while he's traveling. That's super personal. Right. So, so, you know, that you have that dimension where you, you get to know them in, in un- uncomfortable ways in, in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think Niebuhr would really be opposed to being, you know, pigeonholed into a specialty he was such a generalist in his approach and he drew so much from everywhere. He was very comfortable just having a layman's understanding of a bunch of different fields and having his own credential be that he had this amazing ability to pull it all together. And so it's something that I, I do try to keep in mind in, in my own work, right? Like an American conscience is not an academic book, right? I'm dealing with an academic figure but I'm writing for an audience that has zero background in Niebuhr. I deliberately, you know, had a wonderful editor who had zero background in Niebuhr. Wow. Um, but that was all part of this, you know, cause PhDs by their nature to try to force you to specialize and it's, it's, it's try to honor the fact that this is not a figure that fits into a specialty and to try to capture his, his genius for, for synthesis and for drawing bridges between disciplines as opposed to somebody who fits neatly within a single discipline. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That, that that's a really the book I think captures that really well. Uh, yeah, and and for the record, Niebuhr wasn't anti-intellectual or anti the PhD or anything like that. It was just that um, we just well, learned we a lot say about that it. when when he was at Yale, he found out that I guess academic philosophy was not his thing. Um, the way that the it way just... that it was so uh, rigid. Go ahead, we've learned a lot about his, we've learned a lot about his like insecurities. Do you know what I mean? Like he's constantly like, yeah, I'm I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. You know, what I mean? like he's constantly like putting it off. And so I, I just I'm so curious, you know, what because I, I mean, I would love to get uh, that'd be an awesome goal to like eventually get a PhD in Niebuhr studies. I just think of like there is a certain irony just with how he viewed himself. Like he had a very like he looked at himself in a way that was kind of, uh, hey, hey, I'm not I'm not that important. I'm not that important. OK. But he also loved the public um, spotlight as well, right? So he was constantly well, preaching and stuff. So yeah, he, he, well, I kind of like he saw like, like like public attention. One of the, yeah, one no, of the there's things. there's a there's a real tension there. There there absolutely yeah. is because he he wanted influence, but he was self conscious about his credentials, right? Like so he goes to, you know, he writes for the Atlantic when he's like a young man um when he go when he gets to yale right when he's getting his his you know then i think it was a bachelor's of divinity perhaps but um you know he's he's at yale he describes himself as a mongrel among thoroughbreds Mm -hmm. 
right? After he meets Ursula, he describes himself as a Yahoo from Missouri, right? Marrying this, you know, Oxford PhD, right? And she so probably have all yeah. these, you know, he, he is very self-deprecating in that regard, but he, he did have this, I don't think it's too sharp to call it almost a disdain for people who got lost in the minutia, mm-hmm. right? You know, and the, the fest shift that was written for him in, in uh, the mid 1950s, you know, he talks about himself as saying like, yeah, cause he, you know, you have this lineup of all these very accomplished figures who are writing about his thought. And he says, you know, I could never get myself to be interested in the nicer, in the finer points of philosophy, right? That was just never the thing that captured my attention. Um, so when people criticize me for not being a good specialist or not fitting this or that category, they're right. Because that was never what, what captured me to begin with. Which was mm-hmm. precisely Tillich's critique of him is that he has no epistemology. He just begins knowing. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's such a great moment of academic shade, right? Damning with faint praise where he's like, basically says, you know, Reinhold doesn't tell you how he knows. He just... <laughs> you know, goes on knowing and then leaves you with the convincing power to contend with the convincing power of his thought. Um, and so you, you do get a sense of those two taking shots at each other there. Um, I love that. I love that book. I think it's Kegley, but it's the it's uh, kind of bringing together a lot of his contemporaries to write about Niebuhr. Um, and uh, Emil Brunner talks about how I know that he uses me and he never cites me. <laughs> I, I love that yeah. yeah and it's the same anxiety that Niebuhr because I think I think again it's just he was synthesizing from everywhere I think he would have been a very interesting thinker in the social media age in the internet age because he was just constantly pulling from everywhere um, he had these anxieties about the serenity prayer about whether like you know he yeah, was the it. author like that's what the historical research indicates mm-hmm. but he carried around this idea like did did this just like lodge itself in my brain from something i read many years ago yeah. <laughs> and i i just i just you know ended up writing it out one one sunday in the early 30s um so yeah no question he was very much influenced by you know like at least the thought world of emil bruner mm-hmm. um but let's face it did things that emil bruner never did oh yeah Absolutely. yeah Absolutely. Aaron? Um, I've got a couple questions, but uh, I guess this is a two-parter, so I'll take it in two parts. So um, you say that you never read anything by Niebuhr until you're the last semester of your coursework to your PhD before you decided what you were going to write on. Did you hear anything about Niebuhr before then? Um, if so, what were your preconceptions about Niebuhr? And then after you did this project or even maybe including your PhD this, what, what changed your preconceptions about neighbor, if any? Um, you know, I, I came with remarkably few pre- preconceptions. There was an article. Um, I remember, you know, the New York times magazine had an article on neighbor. I think this was maybe in Oh four, right. I saw it or Oh five. I saw it. One of, one of my roommates when I was getting my master's uh, had the magazine and I, you know, it was like basically this, the theologian of power, right. Which grabbed my attention. So I read a little bit about Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and for, for variety of reasons, it was just like a glancing, like, Oh, this is kind of interesting, right. You have this theologians being taken seriously as this, this person who's theorizing power. Um, but I think what really primed me to pick up Niebuhr, I mean, you know, five or six years later, 
and really gravitate toward his thought, because this was an article about him, this wasn't his actual thought, was um, engaging Augustine. You know, because once again, it's it's speaking out of my faith background. It's it's one of the paradoxes of evangelicalism, where as much as it likes to talk about sin, it actually doesn't take sin all that seriously. And that's a big part of the problem, right? Sin basically is akin to cleaning up your act, right? You know, stop drinking, stop sleeping around, right? Mm-hmm. Clean up your language. Don't use curse words. And basically, um, you know, transform yourself into a respectable member of the middle class. If you do that, you're saved. And that sounds harsh, but, I, you know, I, and it's caricature on some level, but there's truth to that caricature, right? It, it has a hard time because it's so focused on the person of thinking of, of sin as, you know, something that we get trapped in in spite of our best selves, right? Not just when we're behaving badly. And um, in Augustine's writing, I found um, a much more robust account of um, original sin, how it affects us personally, right? But also how it just spirals out into society, right? And that's where a book like The City of God was important to my formation, right? Because you you have um, Augustine basically saying that that libido dominandi, right? That that lust for domination that we see manifest, and he, he's explicit about this, it, it manifests in the patriarchal relationship between the Roman patrician and his wife, um, spirals out from the family to infect all of society, right? And the empire can't quit this lust for domination. And that's part of what the healing power of grace does is it heals this thing that has infected the whole. Um, so after sitting in Augustine's world, I, you know, cause I, in my earlier portion of my PhD program, I thought I was going to do history of Christianity work, you know, on something with Augustine, but again, I, I, you know, I confess my own, um, you know, frustration with the, a nicer points of pure theology, right? I, I kept feeling like when I'd engage Augustinians, I just get lost in the weeds and ask myself, why does any of this matter to anyone yeah. outside of this tiny little specialty? Um, that's why Niebuhr was such a breath of fresh air because I encountered him, you know, moral man in a moral society. It was clear to me that this is somebody who had engaged Augustine, hmm. right? And understood particularly Augustine's understanding of sin and its social implications. Um, and also somebody who was purely concerned with what does a figure like Augustine mean right now, mm-hmm. right? How does it help us deal with the problems that, you know, in, in Niebuhr's case, they were facing at the height of the Great Depression when it really felt like American society was about to fall, like fly apart. It's not unlike how Augustine felt about the Roman Empire when he's writing The City of God. And it's not unlike how we feel right, right now in 2022 yeah. yeah right and so to me there is this thread that runs through there from you know augustine in his context of watching an empire crumble to our own context of of watching our own empire crumble and and trying to salvage the good in it right and and redirect the good in it while also being honest about the problem and it, it's it's something i see in my own you know the faith tradition that i come out of is a real difficulty with being honest about the the depth and extent of the problem I have, uh, so my next question is, so kind of getting back to the book, this book in American Conscience was written to be a companion piece to uh, the documentary of the same name, which I believe aired on PBS and can be purchased online. I bought the, the DVD on Amazon. 
I think there are a number of places you can get it. Um, I understand you did a tour uh, with several other scholars and uh, people who were involved in that documentary to promote this uh, this documentary and book. Um, first, what was that like? And did you learn anything from anyone who you spent time with or even someone who came up and started ranting about Niebuhr? Yeah, no, it was, um, it, it's funny how the butterfly effect works. Um, you know, the idea that a butterfly can flap its wings in one part of the world and you end up with storms on the other part. Mm-hmm. Um, because the butterfly effect moment for the documentary was, I, I kid you not, a Sufjan Stevens concert. Oh, Wow. Um, I was attending a concert, a Sufjan Stevens concert in Brooklyn. I think this was in 2010 around that time and ran into a friend of mine uh, named Caleb Maskell, who at the time was getting his PhD at Princeton. And I had just, you know, I just like recently started working on Niebuhr and was thinking about this Niebuhr dissertation. So we, we, we just talked, we caught up, I explained to him what I was working on. And he says to me, you know, have you heard of this scholar named Andrew Finstwin? He just wrote a book called Original Sin and Everyday Protestants. Um, he's somebody you might want to connect with. So I took Caleb's advice, followed up with Andrew Finstwin. We, we met up, I think it was 2011 at the AAR. He'd given a, you know, Finstwin had given a presentation. We met up afterward and talked and just, you know, hit it off. Um, so that was 2011. I struck up this friendship with Andrew Finstwin and he from there went on to become the dean of the honors college at Boise State um but in 2014 I got a call from Finstwin kind of out of the blue uh he's also a Boston College grad by the way so we had that in common as well and had had you know conversations around Niebuhr leading up to this but he called me out of the blue he had just finished um you know at this big project I think it was with Grant Wacker called the uh, Worlds of Billy Graham and there is a documentary component to this project. And so he says to me, you know, I just helped put together this documentary on Billy Graham. We didn't need another do- Billy Graham documentary. There are like 10 of them. Uh, what we need is a documentary on Niebuhr. Um, what do you think? Can you, you know, does that sound interesting to you? And are you willing to do the legwork for helping me with the grant writing and getting the work out there? Um, and so, you know, I said, yes, and obviously I had my skepticism. Can we generate interest in Niebuhr in this way? But I thought, you know, it's worth a shot, um, especially if, if somebody like Andrew, who has some institutional standing, is willing to make phone calls. Uh, so we did. You know, I got to work putting grant writing together, um, and we started talking about people we could have direct it. And one of the names we came up with was this director named Martin Doblemeyer, who'd done this uh, documentary on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which had gotten a lot of traction. So he was kind of like the documentarian of record. And, you know, if you're looking to do a documentary on religion, he was the guy to do it. Mm-hmm. And so Finstone reached out to him and basically said, like, listen, my colleague and I were thinking about doing this project on Reinhold Niebuhr. Are you interested? And, you know, at the time, we had zero sense that he would actually want to do the project. We, I think we couched it more in terms of like, listen, we want your advice. How do we move forward with this? Um, but Doblemeyer was just in between projects and it just didn't, he didn't require much explanation. He's like, oh, right. So, and he was familiar from, with Niebuhr from his own Catholic education way back when. He's like, I don't, haven't spent much time in Niebuhr's world, but this sounds really interesting. And it sounds like what you're describing is that Niebuhr's America's conscience. Mm. And so he said, yeah, like, let's, let's see if we can put a documentary together. And if you don't mind, I'd like to direct it. And so, of course, you know, Andrew and I are 
ecstatic because you put right. Dobelmeyer's name on a grant application that suddenly has credibility. Um, and that combined with, you know, one of my, uh, one of my uh, readers for my doctoral dissertation, his name is Robin Lovin, uh, a very generous scholar of Niebuhr and very well-respected scholar Absolutely. of Niebuhr, um, you know, who, again, I cold called when I started my Niebuhr work on Niebuhr and he agreed to be a part of the dissertation. So it, it just kind of, you know, with Dobelmeyer and Lovin as supporters for a grant writing, it got traction. So, you know, the Lilly Endowment jumped in and, and, and gave us a lot of money. Uh, Arthur Vining Davis jumped in, gave us money. So when all is said and done, I mean, we had, we had quite a bit of money uh, backing the project and certainly enough to put the documentary together. Um, so that's kind of how this whole project got going. Mm-hmm. And the book wasn't part of the initial plan, but what happened was, um, you know, Dobelmeyer was aware of the fact that he was coming to Niebuhr fresh. Like he hadn't read Niebuhr. Mm-hmm. He, he, so he basically flew me to his offices in Alexandria, Virginia was like, listen, like help me digest as much Niebuhr as possible in as short wow. a time as possible. You were very central then to even coming up with the documentary. Yes, I was. And like, Finn Swin was the one who said we need to do a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, the process from there on in, I've, I've been a part of that all the way through. And I'll tell you what, for somebody in my position who just done a, you know, PhD where I focused on Niebuhr, to have a director be like, listen, I'll fly you down to my offices where I'll just take notes on you talking about Niebuhr. My goodness. Right? It, it was like, it, I was just like, I'm like the world's only Niebuhr consultant. This is fantastic. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, Double Mai and I really clicked. I think it, it was like this kind of like mutual appreciation thing. Like I appreciated obviously him giving all his attention to Niebuhr. And I think he appreciated my ability to break Niebuhr down sure. in ways that he can then repurpose for the, for the documentary. But, you know, fairly early on in the project, um, I have a conversation with Doblemeyer and he's like, listen, you know, these PBS documentaries have to be an hour long, right? right? We, we don't have wiggle room there. Ouch. We're going to interview, like, I, I forget what the final number was, but, you know, 12 or 13 people um, each for an hour, maybe more, right? He's like, we're going to have 20 hours worth of footage. And the vast majority of it will end up on the cutting room floor. But what if I had my people give you transcripts? You think you could turn the transcripts into a book? Oh, wow. wow. So that's, that's cool. how the book project ended up becoming a part of it. But yeah, and, and again, I'm you know, indebted to the generosity of, of Martin Doblemeyer because he, you know, he flew me down for a bunch of the interviews. Right. I got to sit in and listen to Gary Dorian and Cornell West give their interviews. I Amazing. watched Jimmy Carter give his interview. Um, Susanna Heschel, I was present for her interview. So I was, I was able to be there for a bunch of these and ask follow-up questions. And it was, that's cool. Yeah. It was really gratifying to watch. There are a couple of points where my follow-up questions generated the sound bites that got into the documentary. Right. So that was like, you know, kind of like a personal vanity level. It was cool to, to see like, oh, right. I'm the one that got that quote that no, made it into yeah, the final cut. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. We're all was cheesing. Was you that, uh, that wrote to these people, uh, to Cornel West, uh, Jimmy Carter and company, or was it Dobermeyer who, who contacted all these people? Uh, so there was some division of labor there. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter, that was his connections. So Dobermeyer, I mean, he had, he's interviewed Bill Clinton before, so he has the connections to, to do that sort of thing. So he's the one who contacted, um, you know, who, who reached out to, to a figure like Jimmy Carter, um, 
I did most of the other contact work. Right. And, and again, like, you know, nobody knows who I am. I'm like a recently minted PhD, but it was the credibility attached to like my email with, Oh, by the way, like this Dean from Boise state and this like known filmmaker are part of this project and we have funding from these organizations. Are you interested? Mm -hmm. That's what gave the pitch its credibility at the end of the day. So you interview all these really big people uh, in theology today. If you could release the transcripts or like the full video of any one of them, just one of them, who would it be? Oh man, just one of them. Listen, this, this will sound like a cop up, but it's gotta be the case. Cornell West. <laughs> it, that's immediately who I, who I thought I would kill to hear him speak for an hour just off the cuff. On yeah. Me. And, and he just has such, um, you know, he's described himself in the past as basically doing the intellectual equivalent of jazz. Mm. And you really see that when he's interviewing because like, you know, obviously he's very well read and he's thought about this all deeply. Um, but by the time that he's, you know, in the room interviewing, he's just riffing. He's just really talented at riffing. Um, but no, that that was a, a really fun interview to watch. And, you know, part of what was neat about it is because I was able to ask a follow up question. I'd watched him back in 2011, give a talk on Niebuhr's a symposium on Niebuhr at Princeton. He was still at Princeton at the time. And everyone else at this thing basically gave a stuffy academic paper on Niebuhr. Not and no. then you have... Um, West go up for his talk. He doesn't have a transcript. He doesn't have anything. He just goes up, leans on the podium. First words out of his mouth are, when I think about Reinhold Niebuhr, I shudder, I shake, <laughs> and I tremble. And then he went off to give went on to give this like brilliant talk on Niebuhr and like the experience of like having Niebuhr's office during his time at Union and was very clear about the shortcomings that he saw in Niebuhr, but it was like overwhelmingly appreciative on the balance. And so at the end of his interview, you know, Dobelmeyer, after he'd asked his questions, turned to me, he's like, Jeremy, do you have any other questions you'd like to ask? And so all I said to Wes was, you know, I heard you speak about Niebuhr at Princeton and you started the talk by saying that Niebuhr made you tremble. Could you say more about that? And it was almost verbatim, right? Like he's, he oh. just like leans down. He's like, oh, right, right, right. So he leans down to the micro and he's like, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr makes me shake and tremble when I think of the depths of this courage. And then he gave this beautiful quote, right? That made it into the film that closes off the book, right? Cause he's basically, you know, Niebuhr's this one of the great, you know, spirits of the species that helps you go to the edge of the abyss and walk out on nothing and land on something, mm. right? It's this incredible quote, right? And it's yeah. just off the cuff by triggering this memory of a talk he gave five years earlier. The guy's crazy. I love that okay. he is jazz, man. He is. Have you seen that? Um, I think it's called Examined Life, the documentary that has like West and Zizek and, and Butler, uh, Singer. Yeah. yeah, he's like Cornell's like in the back of a taxi cab, just like leaning forward and he's just riffing the whole time. And it's just mind blowing stuff. It's amazing. Well, no, in a, I actually had kind of a parallel moment because, um, you know, this is once the documentary was done. We had just done an event at Harvard Divinity School and a bunch of us were going out to dinner afterward, um, including, you know, Cornell West and Finstwin. For whatever reason, I was driving the car with Finstwin and, and West in it. 
<laughs> and was West in the back? He insisted, like, because like <laughs> we're deferring, right? Because it's Cornell West. Like, of course you're going to defer. And and you know we're like you know, you know, Doctor West, please sit in the front. Please of, see sh- shotgun, you know, man. And he's just like, no, 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 no. I'm going in the back, you know, fence when you sit in the front. And sure enough, on our way to the restaurant, he just like leans in from the middle seat in the back and we just chat. But, and it was just, it was like the funniest, because like one of the things we were asking him is like he, because he had just like been, you know, on Fox News, he'd gone on and talked to Hannity. And so we're asking him about like the experiences of going on these Fox News shows. And it, it was just great. Like he's because it was like this very kind of unguarded moment where he's just talking about his experiences of being in these worlds and, and how he navigates it. Um, and also just talked. I mean, like what really caught me off guard with that conversation, he talked about Alistair McIntyre. Right. And was basically like, you know, I, you got to wonder sometimes if, if McIntyre was onto something. Right. Can um religion survive in the public square or is the best we can do you know, is to go off into our our enclaves mm-hmm. and that was just such a striking thing to hear from somebody who's so committed to christianity in the public square no kidding yeah i i had a, I had a follow-up question to to cliff's question um is there anybody because there's one figure right that i like as you're doing these interviews this for this documentary um that I think it's like missing. Right. And I know it was, was there anybody you guys really wanted to get on there, but you weren't able to just because of logistics or maybe they just, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, busy. So like the person I'm thinking of is like, I would have been fascinated to hear what Barack Obama had to say. Hey man, about Niebuhr. we tried, we tried. Oh, okay. And we, okay. I actually think it came down to the fact that it was, the last year of his presidency. I think if it were earlier, mm-hmm. he would have said yes. Because it wasn't like people got back to us. It wasn't like we got brushed off. They're just like, listen, there is zero daylight in Obama's schedule. Right. Like, there's just no way to schedule it. And I'm inclined to believe it, right? You think of what was going down in summer of 2016. Sure. It, it would have been really, really tough. Um, so no, we would have loved to hear Obama on it. Um would have really loved to hear James Cone. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, it was, th- that was another neat moment. This is, you know, after we did the, you know, the, the kind of the screening that launched our screenings at, at Union Seminary, um, you know, we had a, like a dinner after that, you know, on Union Seminary grounds. And I got to chat with James Cone and Cornell West at the same time. Wow. Amazing experience. Um. But one of the neat things was because Cone is one of Niebuhr's harshest and best critics, mm-hmm. right? Some of the most pointed critiques that land the hardest, but really touch on something important. They, they come from Cone. Um, but it was really striking to me how much he clearly, because Niebuhr was on the faculty till 1969. I think Cone came on in 68. Wow. So he interacted with Niebuhr and basically said, yeah, you know, like Niebuhr read a transcript, like an early transcript of black theology and black power and, and loved it. Right. He really encouraged me on it. Amazing. And Cohn said this with like an air of satisfaction. Yeah. Like it meant something to him that Niebuhr read black theology and black power and said, this is great. So it kind of gave me a different vantage point on their relationship because again, you know, Cohn did not teach any other white theologians except for Niebuhr. Mm. 
So as strident of a critic as he was, he, again, you know, like, like, like a figure like Harawa saw a, a great and worthy opponent there, right? Somebody that it was worth disagreeing with somebody that it was worth taking the time to understand and critique. Um, and so again, I, I saw the, the kind of appreciation that some of Niebuhr's um, strongest critics had for him. Now, I believe while you guys were putting this together, uh, Elizabeth Sifton was still with us, right? Yes. Did, did you get to talk with her? Yeah, that, you know, that was um, also just a surreal experience, right? Because it, you have to understand for me, this, the whole experience had an air of the surreal to it, right? Yeah. I just wrote about a guy, right? As a PhD student. And to be able to be that intimately involved with the documentary on the figure, I mean, that would be like the capstone achievement of an academic career. Right. Yeah, no kidding. Right. And here I was like, had this opportunity to just fall on my lap to do this right when I'm finishing my PhD. Um, and interacting with, with Elizabeth Sifton, Sifton was really something because you can tell this is, she's a neighbor, right? right? You really see it. You see it in, in her speech patterns. I, I remember after her talk, I commented to her, I'm like, you know, you have certain turns of phrase that only a neighbor could come up with. And so she asked me which ones I'm like, well, at some point you described the era, this is so the, kind of the red scare era McCarthyism neighbor suspected of being you know, having this communist sympathies because everybody was suspected of that during the McCarthy era. And she described her dad as being under what she called a pink penumbra of untrustworthy left wingism. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's the most neighbor phrase I've ever heard in my life. Like, who else would put those words together? And she just stops and looks at me. And she's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I believe, Did, uh, Zach, you're up. Oh, well, um, this is kind of an overarching. Uh, uh, how, how did this book, if it did at all, I mean, I, I, I want to assume, but did this um, did this study, I mean, I, I knew you just got done with your PhD at the time, so you were pretty much pretty into Niebuhr, but how did interacting with these figures and writing this book specifically maybe chase change or impact some of your faith commitments? Like, did you find yourself sitting at night reciting the, the serenity prayer <laughs> through your head? You know what I mean? Um, was there anything like, you know, cause I'm as a pastor, I'm like thinking like, how did this change your faith commitments the way that you practice your faith? If it did, I mean, I just, I'm curious. I think what it did is it, it really kind of reinforced my faith in the ability to exercise my faith in the public square. Right. I, um, because it, it was really moving to, you know, same thing with, you know, cause I got to see the Jimmy Carter interview as well. Like you realize that these people who really had these incredible opportunities to leave a mark on the world um, have really deep faith. You know, I, you think of your, you know, your, 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 your Gary Dorian's like in, in purely secular context, he has a lot of credibility because he's an amazing historian um, interacting with him over the course of the film. You realize, oh, right. This guy's also like an Episcopal priest, right? <laughs> like right. you realize, oh, this is somebody who cares really deeply about his faith. Uh, Cornell West, somebody who has the standing as a public intellectual, you interact with him directly. You realize this is somebody who, really cares about faith and um 
So all these people who were drawn to Niebuhr, and you know what, that extends to somebody like Susanna Heschel. She's, you know, my colleague up at, at, at Dartmouth. Um, but again, like you, you hear this, this, you know, she talks about her own reminiscences of growing up with her dad being friends with, with Reinhold. I was going to ask, so that th- this is Abraham's, Abraham Heschel's daughter. This is Abraham. Just- yes. Yeah, so, so Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, his daughter, Susanna, uh, teaches at, at, at Dartmouth and is, I mean, she's an eminent academic in her own right. Um, but she, you know, she was, you know, kind enough to really do a lot of reflecting on, on her own recollections of, of the Niebuhr family and her dad's connection to, to Reinhold and um, seeing how Ryan, you know, Niebuhr and Heschel, how they kind of reinforce each other's faith, right? People from two different faith traditions. I love it. Um, in an era where um, there wasn't nearly as much commerce between Jewish and Christian leaders. Um, you know, it, it, so yeah, to, to answer the question, it, it really bolstered my hope that there is a way to practice Christianity in public that isn't just damaging, mm-hmm. that doesn't just drag the name of Jesus through the mud, but um, that actually can, um, you know, however incrementally and imperfectly nudge things for the better. Um, I think I came out with a reinforced sense of that. There are faith examples out there, Cornell West, Garadorian, people who are out there in the public square. Um, they aren't the loudest voices in Christianity <clears throat> sometimes, but uh, but yeah, I I can totally I can totally see that. It, to, to see well, that working up, up close and personal would be would be pretty amazing. I I think it's cool too because it's like I mean that's something, something like just having engaged with the book. I know we're not going to get into the book a ton, but definitely came away from your book, very firmly convicted that faith needs to impact society and that we shouldn't give up on that um, endeavor. You know, we shouldn't give up on that endeavor because of people have screwed it up so royally in the, in the recent past and the distant past. Yeah, no, there is kind of a sense in, in Niebuhr of like, listen, go ahead and get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the only way you're going to build anything worthwhile. Right. Like you're not going to build the kingdom of heaven, but if you want to be any kind of leaven in a broken world, mm-hmm. right, you, you got to get out there and do it with as much humility as you can muster. Do it with your eyes open, but also with, you know, like faith in the power of grace to, you know, make up for your own shortcomings. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I, academia um in its own right can be this really soul-crushing place where people come in with all sorts of idealism to all sorts of different fields not just religion um and you just watch it get bled out of them over the course of their careers and to be around people who have progressed so far in you know be at the halls of power or in academia you know facing these soul-crushing pressures pressures and still being able to salvage something Right. And not just salvage it, but have it be like what animates. Still got a soul. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Was was also really reinforcing. It made me feel like, okay, like there is something. Yes, it can be soul crushing to get out there, get your hands dirty and like go dive right into the belly of the beast. Right. Mm -hmm. But faith can sustain us in that. And I I did draw a lot of a lot of uh, inspiration in that regard. Um. So we have just enough time for each of us to ask one more question. So this will be my last writing a biographical sketch about Niebuhr, just like writing about any theologian 
can be difficult. There are many things to balance. Um, many become over theological and don't convey the life of the theologian much. Some kind of become atomistic and miss kind of the forest for the trees a bit. But you you did a great job without getting too into the book. You do do an excellent job of striking a balance here. Um, honestly, probably the best that I've seen. Uh, and I've I've read and they, they all offer something different, like Fox Fox's biography does something different than what you're trying to do here, for example. But you do strike an excellent balance here. And I came out of this, I think, with a fuller understanding of Niebuhr and how his life integrated with his thought. And I'm wondering if you came away from writing this with a new perspective on the man as well. Um, did what did you get out of writing this kind of partly biographical, partly uh, explanation of his works, you know, how did this change your perspective at all? Yeah, no, I, I really, I appreciate the um, kind comments about the book and, and part of it was a product of circumstance. I had a summer to write this, right? That was it. I was on a really tight timeline because we needed to um, get the book done to coincide with the release of the film. And um, part of what made that possible, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that I had a an, an really able editor who knew nothing about Niebuhr. Um, and that's true. His name is, is, is Matt Newman. He's got a PhD in classics, right? So completely different field, had a good eye for how to string words together and nothing about Niebuhr. It ended up being perfect because what it did is it, um, when I would kind of like start getting into the weeds, start losing the forest for the trees, he would tell me, right? Where he'd say, like, I know that this is obvious to you. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? As somebody with no background in Niebuhr. So having an editor with no familiarity with the topic was really helpful for, for making sure that I kind of, like, was able to keep, like, thread that needle in and keep that balance. Um, and, you know, as to how writing the book changed my own appreciation for Niebuhr, I, I think what it did is... Because listen, like you, you come away with a sense of his blind spots. Like there, there, there's plenty, particularly on race, that I wish he'd seen more clearly. Um, there's some stuff on on gender that I think he had the categories in hand to do better with than he did, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I see in Niebuhr this really admirable commitment that I also discern in somebody like Augustine, right? Like Augustine writes the confessions, he writes the retractions. Right. You're, you have this sense in, in Augustine's thought for all of his flaws and very real and major flaws as a thinker that he basically at the end of his life was like, listen, I did the best I could. There, there are flaws here. I tried to own up to them. Please do better if you can. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the prevailing spirit of Niebuhr's work as well, where he takes a mighty swing. Right. Hits a home run sometimes, strikes out other times. Mm -hmm. And basically says, I did the best I could. I tried to own up what I, to what I got wrong. Um, there's still plenty that I could have done better. Uh, do better if you can. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beautiful and moving about that, right? Um, because Niebuhr was so committed to engaging his contemporary context, right? He didn't have the luxury of hindsight. Um, he was taking intellectual risks all the time. And, um, you know, I think that's encouraged me in my work to, you know, perhaps not always be so damn cautious. Like if I feel like something needs to be said, if I feel like I need to put myself out there, <clears throat> if I know I'm going to open myself up to criticism, do it anyway. <clears throat> right? Because that's how 
you know, that's where like the cutting edge of things where you can actually, you know, help shape the way things are playing out happens, right? We have to take the risk of being wrong, sometimes embarrassingly wrong to be able to do that work. And um, I came away with a real appreciation for how, how Niebuhr did that. And, you know, the book is structured to try to capture, like, here are the points of continuity, here are the ways that he changed. And you'll see that as you move through the chapters, he's a very different figure in the 1960s than he was in the 1930s. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's a story of like constantly putting himself out there and constantly adjusting his approach in light of his critics and in light of, of really just striving to do better. Would you say, kind of a follow-up real quick, would you say that Niebuhr evolved in his thinking as much uh, broad scope, like through the course of his life? Was this a maturation of his thinking from the 30s through the 60s? Or do you think he might have lost some courage, you know, there at the end? Um, Both the strength and weakness of Niebuhr is that he um, was very single-minded. Right. So he would master whatever issue was on his radar and lose sight of other things in the process. For instance, for the 1930s, he's pretty remarkable on race in moral man and immoral society. And it's because he's teaching, you know, Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson in his classes. At and it just come out, came out of Detroit as well. where he And worked. just came out of Detroit. Right. So he's like dealt very squarely with um, race issues in, in a city that had a really toxic race problem in the 1920s and earned the respect of the black community there for his work, right? They, they really appreciated his, his advocacy. Um, 1950s, right? He suffers a stroke in 1952. You know, he's not leaving his apartment much. That's when he's weakest on race, right? Interesting. He's not seeing it with his own eyes. So he's not able to wrap his mind around it and, and is like encouraging moderation at precise moments when when the movement really needs a push and really needs right. figures like Niebuhr to, to to use their clout to push well i i have sort of a connected question to that because yeah. the, my, my my final question for you actually has to do there's a guy on twitter his account was called reinhold bieber i mean yeah, yeah reinhold bieber and so i reached out to him to just kind of see what the deal was with that and apparently he's he says he's a historian uh, teaches somewhere he didn't specify, but I kind of asked him like, why, like, what did you think about him? And he's like, well, I think it's a perfect blend of history because Niebuhr wanted to be a pop star. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, but then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> I kind of asked for more explanation. Cause I was just so curious how he arrived at this. Cause it just didn't strike me the same way. And so he says, uh, fame influence seems to be something he was really interested in. And I think it's worth noting the way that the major changes in his thought between World War I and Cold War tended to align with the shift of public opinion. World War I pacifist, New Deal socialist, Cold War realist. And so he's kind of accusing Niebuhr of just kind of following the times in terms of uh, his, his opinion is more just the pop, pop, popular opinion. Whereas I see him more being somebody that's actually shaping those opinions that we would call like Cold War realist, you know, like things like that. So I was just curious, kind of like, I don't know. I think it's kind of a harsh assessment. But. Yeah, no, it, it is. And I think it's, it's a wrong assessment. Um, I will say Reinhold Bieber Tumblr is hilarious. <laughs> it's worth looking up. Um, but yeah, so, so like, you know, going back to the race example, he gets much better on race again in the 60s, right? Um, be, I think it's because of his relationship with Abraham Joshua Heschel, 
who was attending the marches and could report back to him. Here's what's happening. Right. And so you have him rediscover some of his former fire, like his best writing on writings on race are from the thirties and the sixties. Hmm. Also some good stuff, by the way, on, you know, black soldiers returning and getting shut out of the GI bill. <laughs> he, he saw that as a problem and was very vocal about it as a problem. Um, so he, but, but yeah, so he recovers that edge. As to the point, you know, was he like being shaped by his times or was he shaping them? The way I, I read Niebuhr is he, he showcases the value of theology for those who are engaged in public scholarship. Because to my mind, what theology gave him, what his theological framework gave him was a vantage point from which to see just a little farther around the corner than other people around him, right? So yeah, he's not leading the curve by much, but it's by enough. Like where I really disagree with this assessment of, of Niebuhr, like following the times, he was an interventionist long before that was a popular position. He was calling attention to um, what was happening to Jews in Europe in the early 1930s. Mm -hmm. That's way before other Americans were. Mm. And that's part of why Jewish thinkers have such a fondness for Niebuhr. I mean, this is a German American. Mm. Let's remember that. Mm. But what they see in Niebuhr is somebody who saw the problem and was outspoken about it long before other pastors were even paying attention. And, you know, when, when he was making the case for intervention, it was not the popular position at all. Yeah, he disagreed with his brother over Japanese intervention, right? Pretty Absolutely. early. I think that was in the 30s. Right? Yeah, and, and to H. Richard's credit, you know, H. Richard had very principled reasons for taking that position. Mm-hmm. Um, America Firsters did not. Their pacifism was laden with all this other nativist nonsense, right? Um, and Niebuhr called them out on it. When we, when we talk about Niebuhr's argument with with pacifists during this period it's important to remember that the pacifism of the 30s and and 40s was not the pacifism that emerged after right um the pacifists who responded to niebuhr had a much more well-articulated and forceful position than the one that he was contending with when he was making the case for entering the world war ii Hmm. um so all that to say zach no I, i do disagree with that position i think he helped shape the world um, that he inhabited and it, it didn't always go well. Like his version of cold war realism was very different than the one that won out. You know, the version that won out, I talk about this a little bit in the book, um, the kind of like Henry loose America's too weak. We need to do everything to strengthen America's resolve. That was not Niebuhr, Mm. right? His version of it was we're a country with overwhelming power. Let's be very careful and thoughtful about how we use it. Mm. That's not the version that won out. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, obviously he's shaped by his times and there are all sorts of ways that we can see him as a product of his times, but I think he was one of the main shapers and, um, in many instances was not nearly as influential on certain aspects of the world that emerged as we often think of him as being. Yeah. Well, that's definitely in my opinion. I, I just thought it was kind of funny because, you know, he's, he, obviously he's looking at it from a more he's not a fan, right? Niebuhr hasn't obviously shaped his life in some way. And so he's, you know, he's, I'm always looking for that person who's a critic of Niebuhr who, because I want to know, like, am I fangirling too much? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, and and I, I'm looking for that, but I, I didn't think that that assessment was super, just from what I've read. I mean, even I think of like reading leaves from the notebook of a tame cynic and 
his engagement with race, even the 19, you know, 10s to 1920s, it seems like really early compared to some of the other people at the time. Yeah, like one of the um, hallmarks of what makes Niebuhr Niebuhr is the fact that he bucks, you know, people who thought that they already agreed with him. And, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he breaks with them. Yeah. yeah. Good. Aaron, did you have a closing question? Yes. Um, so I've been sitting here for the past five minutes um, considering the question I wanted to ask. I have a serious one, but this is the last question. I think I should end it on a light note. So there are two questions. Um, you can answer as freely as you want. If you are constrained by the information, please feel free not to, to answer. You've mentioned previous in the podcast um, that, you know, you working quite intimately with Niebuhr and his wife through yeah. his letters and the entire corpus of his letters. Did you find anything really weird or any funny little <laughs> anecdotes you want to share? And then the second question is if the love thy neighbor podcast sells started to sell merch, what kind of merch would you like to see um, on display? You want a free mug? <laughs> oh man, I, I love those two questions. Um, so I, I one of the things that like I just I had me cracking up like you know in in the archives of the Library of Congress was um, the letters when he and Ursula recording, right? Like you just watch this like intellectual giant just fall completely flat. Like he tries out like pet names. And she tells him in so many words, like, dude, no, like, this is not you. Don't call me kid. Don't call me these. Like, no, just, just don't just, just stop. That's funny. That is and, funny. And, and so you get a sense of their dynamic that way where you're just like, yeah, this guy's like intellectually brilliant and completely flat footed when it comes to like being smooth in personal letters. Um, and, but the other thing that I just, I loved was like, so when he's, you know, at the World Council of Churches in 19, I think it was 1948. Um, don't, don't quote me on that. I might have the date wrong, but it's like in the late forties. Um, and he's just talking about his frustrations with Karl Barth. It, it just, it's just so funny. Cause like you get the sense of like his deep admiration. He really admires Bart and also just finds Bart completely frustrating where he's like, listen, this guy, and this is almost a direct quote. Bart is brilliant. He's both a poet and a prophet. And I do not understand how somebody with this level of brilliance is so bad at interacting with other people. <laughs> and so he's just like venting to his wife about Bart, right? Um, but it's just like this beautiful thing. And then he talks later on. He's like, yeah, you know, uh, Bart and I like shared a, literally like we shared a beer and he apologized for like the sharp thing he said. And he was, he was very charming and very nice. Right. So it's just, you get a whole human side to these giants, um, in the field. Oh man, the merch question. <laughs> I, I, I might have to give this some thought, but I, I do think that there are just like amazing, like, I, I, I still think Niebuhr would have like owned Twitter. Like he's oh, just yeah. so sharp with oh, the yeah. one-liners and yeah. like finding some really great out of context one-liners to slap on a mug, I think could be pretty great. I, I I'm I'm imagining like a black t-shirt just with white writing is just that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> just having that on there, I just thought my whole neighbor like. 
um, or like a comment about like the stupidity of the average man, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, no, but one of my favorite anecdotes that we got from Elizabeth Sifton is she, you know, like when his health was ailing later on in life, one of the things that people would do to cheer him out is cheer him up is find like just the, what she describes as the most ghastly examples of serenity prayer kitsch. <laughs> Right. So like whatever kitschy use of the prayer, like whether it's on a keychain or a coffee mug or whatever else, just send it to him because it would get him to crack up. Oh my gosh. That'd be great. Um, which I kind of love. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot about the man and a sense of humor where people are like, I found this most ridiculous use of the serenity prayer. I'm going to send this to Reinhold. Oh my God. That's something we should definitely think about. Yeah. I get people send that stuff to me too. Cause they know. Well, imagine, I, I, imagine, you know, if nowadays you'd go into any grandmother's bathroom and find it sitting on the, sitting in front of the toilet there. The oh, yeah. oh prayer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to so many houses and it's sitting right there as you sit down, you know? <laughs> no, totally. And you know I, what? Um, saying- yeah. And this is something I, I talk about in the book is like, I, I actually think he'd be really moved to see like struggling addicts um reciting the prayer right like really broken people like finding solace in it i think would have meant the world to him um but it's it's alongside just the most ridiculous uses of it that completely you know missed the point and I, yeah I, I could yeah like zach what you're saying like seeing it over the, the toilet at, at like a grandmother's house i think he'd just be like wow that's amazing well that probably about does it for today um i want to thank uh jeremy again for joining us it was great conversation as usual really appreciate it and we look forward to talking to you again um after we wrap up with the book um and thank you all again for listening give us a like and a subscribe and be sure to follow us on twitter at love thy neighbor for news and updates take care everybody and stay safe out there